Okay, if you would, please turn to the Gospel of Luke. If you have a Bible, if not, you may just listen in. Luke chapter 6, I'll be reading verses 27 to 36 as we continue our journey paragraph by paragraph through Luke's Gospel. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive... What credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners in order to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Blessed is the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray. Father, my prayer, as a pastor, as a teacher, is that I be used for nothing more and nothing less than as a conduit of restatement of the intended meaning of your son's sermon this day to us who hear. In Jesus' precious name I ask it. Amen. <clears throat> Did Jesus really demand that we love our enemies. Wow. Let me just start this way. Here's, here, here's the bird's eye view of this passage. There are three sections to it. The first is verses 27 to 31, where he gives nine consecutive commands, essentially of Enemy love. Love your enemy. Do good to those who hate you. Etc. And so you just nine straightforward commands. Then in verses 32 to 34, it's an, it's an argument for why obedience of believers to these commands of enemy love show forth the genuineness of your Believership, 
if I can say it that way. He says, the difference is, it's easy for all of us, before coming to Christ or after, to love those who love us. But for those who come to Christ, and it's seen in their life this otherworldly impossibility to love those who hate them, he says, that's a mark of my disciples. And then from that he draws the conclusion in the last section, verses 35 and 36, saying, therefore, go on, love your enemies. Do good to them, because in this way you show that you are truly a son of the Most High, a daughter of the Most High. You have truly come to Christ. Therefore, like He, God, who is patiently showing kindness to His enemies, to to the evil, be like Him. That's the text as a whole. Now, here's the big question before we start to pick it apart and look at it. And then, what, what do we do with this? What do we do with these radical love commands? For instance, uh, do we say that what they mean is, do these, love your enemies, when you feel like punching them in the face, do good to that guy or gal, who hates you, go ahead and do that. And therefore, if you do, you will get into heaven. You will be saved in Jesus. Is is that what he means? Or does he mean something like this? Well, Jesus spoke these words before he went to the cross. So, they're law. They're before the cross, like Mosaic law, do's and don'ts. Therefore, these commands do not apply to the church or to Christians purely because they're law. Now we're under grace. As many American evangelicals over the last 120 years have interpreted such commands. Should we interpret them that way? Or do they mean something like this? when he says, love your enemies. That to you who hear, that's the context that Luke gives us. Remember, last week, he's speaking to his disciples. Do they mean something like this? Love your enemies. Why? Because you have been saved. Because you have been internally changed by the kingdom of God. Because you are God's child through Jesus now. Therefore, go forth in the world and show that reality by loving your enemies. Because it reflects your Father who so loved evil, sinful, undeserving you. Yeah, I see nodding, you should. That's what I think Jesus means in the context of these commands. Remember, last week I labored the point in this sermon on the plane, which we're, we're going to be in it for a few weeks, and now we're in this section, to not misread his words, to not misinterpret the meaning of what he is doing. 
And the way I did it is stressed what we've already seen in Luke, that with Jesus' coming is coming the promised rule and reign of God, or called the kingdom of God. And that what is happening with His coming in ever since is that people in the hearing of the Word of God, of the Gospel, are being swept into the kingdom of God, the rule in the reign of God. Sovereignly, something is happening to many people's hearts toward Jesus and thus toward God. And in so doing, that is the assumption of Jesus' address in the Sermon on the Plain to His disciples. And so we saw as He began the sermon last week with the Beatitudes, they were essentially an announcement to His disciples. You see how blessed you are because of these changes in your heart. And therefore what? We do not earn our way into God's family by loving our enemies. But Rather, when we love our enemies, we are proving that we are in the family. And there is a massive difference. If, he is saying, if you love your enemies the way God loves His enemies, then you show that you're a chip off the old block. In other words, Jesus' commands assume that something profound has happened in those whom He is talking to. So that they now can, imperfectly, but genuinely. Let me say it again. Never flawlessly, but genuinely live this way. Look at verses 35 and 36. That's what he's getting at when we read in Luke 6, 35-36, Jesus' words. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. Because He is kind to the ungrateful. In the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Okay, just make sure we get this. See, you might read Jesus' words here to mean something like this Love your enemies, be this way, and because of that, you will become sons of the Most High. But that won't stand up to the context, nor to the rest of Scripture. I mean, he just says right there. See the last sentence, verse 36? Be merciful, in other words. It's a restatement. Be merciful as your heavenly Father is merciful. No, no, no. See, He's already your heavenly Father. You're not being merciful or loving your enemies in order to get Him to be your Father. The assumption is He is your Father. In other words, love your enemies the way 
your father. He's your father because he swept you into the kingdom because you have embraced the truth of his son and the gospel. And therefore, love your enemies, showing that you genuinely are his daughter, his son. You genuinely have saving faith in him. Because God, it says, is kind to the ungrateful and to the evil. That, see, you see the logic? You see the flow? Therefore, you're loving your enemies, those disciples of Christ throughout the ages. When that shows itself in, not perfectly, but genuinely, it's pointing to something, and that is that you are showing forth You really are a child of the Most High. Just in other words, let me say it again. I'm going to repeat myself. Prove yourself, Jesus is saying. Prove yourself to be true sons of the Most High by loving your enemies. Show that you are a child of God by acting the way God acts toward evil people like you. When he showed mercy. He's saying, if you are born again, if you've been, as the epistle of 1 John says, if you have been born of God, then his DNA, his character is there. It's in you. Oh yeah, with the remaining sinful nature. But his character is in you and you will be inclined to do what Jesus you following me? Let me show you one other text. Because I'm just, just trying to argue the point. Do not read this to say, love your enemies, and that is the way God will become your father. As opposed to your judge. That's not what he's saying. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 5, verse 6, 16, in the Sermon on the Mount. Quote, Let your light shine before others, like enemy love, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So again, the foundation is this. Jesus has saved them. Converted them. By the kingdom, sweeping over their souls, changed something within us sinners. And then you let your good light shine and they give glory to your Father who's in heaven. Why do they give glory to God and not to you for showing good work? Because you could not have done it unless God first grabbed hold of you through the Gospel and indwelt you by the Spirit. If he's saying, do these things in order to get into God's family, okay, I did them, can I get in now? Then you should be getting the glory and not your Father who is in heaven. Don't flip Jesus' words around to say exactly the opposite of what he's saying. The bottom line point here is, before we get into this text, we're going to get there in a minute now, is that as we have seen with the whole Gospel of Luke, and the angel comes to Mary and 
the eternal God, the one and only God, the creator, the second person of the Holy Trinity is implanted in the womb of Mary. He is coming to earth in genuine, authentic humanity, the eternal one. He is not coming in order to look throughout the lands and find righteous people who are performing enemy love. Oh, I found one. You're my disciple. I'll save you. It's not what the gospel is about. One reason that he did not come to do that is that there are no such people. Period. Remember Paul? Romans 3. There is none righteous. No. Not. One. He came for the poor in spirit. He came for those who are bankrupt of righteousness and of do-gooding. And what that really means is this. Who recognize their sinful state before God. Do you remember Jesus' lines we saw a few sermons back in Levi, the tax collector's house, where He says, I have not come to call the righteous those people who, especially religiously, think they're righteous and okay with God. No. He says, I've come to call sinners to repentance. None of us are born into this world now since the fall of Adam. In the sense that he means here, sons or children of God. None of us are born that way. Ephesians chapter 2 says clearly we all in Joe LeMay foremost was born a child of wrath. A sinner who has earned and deserved only just perfect, horrific But, this is the miracle of Jesus' coming. People in that state are made, changed into, children of the Most High. And that happens, according to this book, when in the hearing of the message of Jesus Christ, their hearts Embrace that truth. And they're changed. As Jesus said it. Unless a person is born from above, they'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. And part of that, what's happening there in us sinners' lives, is at the same time this recognition of how sinful we really are. That we are sin-sick patients. As Jesus says, needing the physician. <laughs> He's come as the physician. That is how the Christian life starts. Period. I see it. My eyes are open to it. My heart clings to the truth that Jesus bore my sin. 
He came in order to be my substitute and take my penalty. And that He was bodily and physically resurrected on the third day. And like me, out of the blue, not because I was smarter than anybody else, but of God's mercy at age 19, I I see it. And one's life is changed. That is the only way the Christian life starts. That is the only way we become children of God. It is starts by treasuring the Savior. It is believing, for instance, Jesus' words in Mark 10.45. I have not come to be served by you. I have come to serve you and to give my life as a ransom for many. It is only those of us who desperately understand we need to be ransomed, purchased, bought. We're in trouble. And we embrace that message. That person. That's the only way the Christian life starts. Are you ready for the transition to Jesus' text? And then when that happens, you will find that you are in the kingdom of God. You will find that God has no more wrath. You will find that none of your sins, past, present, and future, will be held to your account ever because His Son bore them. And you will find that you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit and thus you are being energized by God's power to live out the Sermon on the Plain that we're in the midst of right now. If you just look a couple sentences forward there, I'm not going to read it, but that's why Jesus is going to go into fruit bearing. Bear fruit! Not in order to become a tree, but to prove that you are a genuine tree of salvation. Okay? That's my intro. Not, not really. That was just the set first half. Now that we got that, let's look at the text. Verse 27. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Okay. So, okay. Enemy. Who's my enemy? It's how he, they're going to ask Jesus later, right? Who's my neighbor? That's kind of hard. Who's my neighbor? This is hard. Okay, what do you mean, my enemy? Who, who is that? Well, from the context, we're going to clearly see he means a wide range of feelings and actions of others directly towards you, like feelings of hatred of you, severe opposition, abuse, cursing you out, to even mild snubbings, slights, insults. And so, as we go through these, be praying, God, help me see particular peoples in my life that I'm struggling with. So that He would give to us the ability to love our neighbors. 
But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Okay, it's, in other words, just love those who have a deep animosity or antagonism or dislike of you. By enemy, he means those who are against you, who oppose you, who endeavor purposefully to hurt you, to curse you, to abuse you. Some who were standing there that day, Jesus delivered this sermon. Let me just give you two. James, the son of Zebedee, and Simon Peter. He means people like them who even this enemy hatred would be on a level of the hatred that Jesus Himself will experience and will get Him tortured slowly to death on a cross. 2,000 years of church history of Jesus' disciples has led ten thousands of ten thousands to brutal martyrdom. And it's happening today in parts of the world where people are being imprisoned and tortured and killed behind the Islamic bloc or China, parts of Asia, because of their faith in Jesus. Now, and Jesus says to them, or, or, or to us who, someone insults us, he says, love them. If they slander your name, and sometimes that's more painful than a punch in the face. He says, love them. If they're about to kill you, He says, love them. He's saying, my sheep, be the kind of person that shows that you have been so changed from the inside that this is actually possible. Now, how do we go about that? Just listen to what he says. Here's enemy love. Act. Do good things for those who hate you. They hate you. And Jesus says, return good doing to that person. He says, bless those who curse you. So if a person verbally attacks you, respond with kind words. If he cusses you out, he says, don't respond by telling them off, even if you can refrain from cuss words. He's saying, be gracious to him or her. Look at verse 29. 
to one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. Now, this saying of Jesus has been so often through the centuries wrongly interpreted to mean never defend yourself against violence. It's just not what he means. It has been often wrongly interpreted to mean never join the military or the police force. Or that governments should never go to war. It's been wrongly interpreted to make Jesus a pacifist, which means never use physical force or violence in any occasion, period. Now, let me just go at this a couple of ways while I've been saying that. Scripture interprets Scripture ultimately. First, it's context, but then the lighter. Scripture. And Scripture does not contradict itself. And Jesus clearly said through the Apostle Paul in Romans 13, for instance, that the government has the right, and not only the right, it's God-ordained. They have the duty to bear the sword. Physical force to enact upon evil doers. Or, when we saw John the Baptist is preaching, remember, some of those were soldiers. And the soldiers, okay, repentance, what shall we do, John? He didn't say, get out of the military. He says, stop abusing your authority against others. Jesus' words here about turning the other cheek, let me just start this way. They are not on the level of social order or government responsibilities. Okay. Neither does turn the other cheek mean in your life Never confront evildoers against you. I, I can't... If it did, how do you explain Jesus in Jerusalem slowly taking the whip? And in His sinless anger getting physical with the money changer merchandisers, turning over their tables and chasing them out. Or to confront evil? Huh, are you kidding? Jesus, you'll never die on a cross. Or That's not going to happen. He didn't just turn your energy. Yeah, keep telling me stuff, Peter. He spoke. Get behind me, Satan. Turning the other cheek does not mean that a wife is to sit silently by day after day, week after week, absorbing punches to her face from her evil husband. He's not saying that. He said, there, get help. Go to the leaders of the church. Go to the police. 
Most of you, members of this church, what are you doing, Joe? You're an expositor. Please don't play with Scripture because you don't like it when I play with Scripture and I don't want to. You should be asking this question then. In saying that after these words, someone strikes you on the cheek, turn to him the other also. You should say, Pastor Joe, are you trying to dance around Jesus' words? And my answer is no, I'm not. I'm trying to get at the intended meaning of his words. Now, this is what I mean. In Matthew chapter 5, 39, he says the same thing, but he says it in, with different words. And in the culture, this is what I think we're supposed to hear, which means this is what he means. And this is how it is put in Matthew chapter 5, verse 39. Jesus says, If anyone slaps you, on the right cheek. Not the left one. The right one. Turn to him. The other also. Okay. Vast majority of human beings are what? Right-handed. In order for me, as a right-handed person, to slap Alex on the right cheek, <laughs> I won't do it. I have to take it this way and hit him with the back of my hand. And that's the point. In the ancient culture, to smack someone with the back of your hand across the face, the point wasn't to try to win a physical battle. The point was an insult. Publicly. Humiliate the person. That's what I'm saying Jesus means. He said, turn to Him, the other else, in your gospeling. Christian, living in this world where Jesus is the centerpiece of your existence, whether you're on the mission trail or you're in mothering and in society. And because of Christ, you are insulted. Smack. Don't smack back. Don't stop what got you insulted either, which is the gospel of Christ. Turn the other cheek. You might get smacked. He's saying, don't retaliate to the insult, but keep loving your enemy. Don't return the backhand slap. Let me quote from one commentator, Daryl Bach, in summarizing this point. Quote, Offering the other cheek is not so much an active pursuit as it is a natural exposure when one reaches out to those who have contempt. Revenge is excluded, while doing good to the hostile is commanded. In the context of persecution, offering the cheek means continuing to minister at the risk of further persecution as Paul does in Acts chapter 14 and Acts chapter 16. End quote. And so, Jesus says, turn the other cheek. Love your enemy. Don't retaliate in kind to the insult. I'm offended. I must offend back. He says, do you know me? Don't do it. 
when you're being falsely accused, personally backhanded upon the right cheek. Don't return it. Go on trusting Christ, holding to the truth, which is exposing your other cheek. Verse 29. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Now, those are the only two pieces of clothing they wore. Your outer garment and your underwear. Don't withhold your underwear. Jesus isn't saying, okay, here you go. Go around naked every time thieves want to take your stuff. The old Roman roads could be pretty dangerous. And as His disciples will be traveling these roads, and in the name of Christ and in the bringing of the Gospel, you're treated that way and they're taking your garment and don't start fighting. Are you going to take money or are you going to take it? We'll have to find some more. His point is love the enemy. In the giving of the gospel. Don't take your sword and run it through them. The martyrs of the church are purposed by Jesus to show forth the glory of the Father. Even though you may be exposed on those Roman world's disciples, you will have opponents. Don't allow that to cause you to run and hide. Continue to preach and be vulnerable. Verse 30. Give to everyone who begs from you and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. Again, Jesus is making a point. One point he is not making is this. He's not saying disregard the book of Proverbs. Disregard wisdom in life. He's not saying ongoingly enable other people to cause their life to tailspin into irresponsibility. It's not. What he's saying. He's not saying indiscriminately, day after day, without thinking and using any wisdom, just give to anyone who says anything and, hey, I would like to have your house. Give it away. So you have no place to live. It's not what he's saying. He's pointing out something that biblical love, even for enemies, means hold your possessions so loosely and use wisdom. And there's oftentimes where it's the loving thing to give. Don't let your covetousness cause you not to give. He's getting at the hard attitude of our selfishness, which causes us not to self-sacrifice for others. Again, another commentator, Leon Morris, says it this way, quote, If Christians took this command here, give to everyone who begs from you, If Christians took this one command here, absolutely, literally, there would soon be a class of saintly paupers owing nothing and another class of prosperous idlers and thieves. It is not this 
that Jesus is seeking, but a readiness among his followers to give and give and give. End quote. In other words, love for our possessions should never be the excuse of not loving. Wisdom still is there. And wisdom guides you right now. You, I know that. You, no, you're not getting that. That would be bad for you. But that doesn't work there. Other times it says, yes, give. And all of this activity that he's laid out now about enemy love can be summed up in verse 31, his next statement. And as you wish that others would do to you, so do to them. Now, that little ditty, that golden rule, it existed before Jesus, but in the negative. Those things which you would not like to be done to you, don't do those to others. And that's a good rule to live by too. But now Jesus flips this in the positive. And He says, to all who are His, look even at enemies this way. If you were in their shoes, in that context, that, that, that itself takes a little energy to actually try to put yourself in another person's place emotionally, physically, their context in the world, their family, their marriage, etc. He's saying, think about that. Now, that's you. Put yourself there. What would you want be done, to be done for you in that situation? And sometimes there are people that are actually hungry and you would want a sandwich. You might want a glass of water. You might want a listening ear. You might want someone just to acknowledge your presence. Or we can go on and on. If I were them, how would I feel loved? And he's saying, do that. Even to your enemies. Okay, there's this, all these commands. Then he drives this enemy love home in verses 32 to 34. Come on, do this, because if you love those who love you, which you do, and you're going to go on doing, but if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, and that's the reason you're doing it, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners in order to get back the same amount. So, notice two things. Here, here the enemy is anybody who doesn't love you. Okay. In other words, you do this to those who love you, no problem. Now, everybody else. He's saying... If you, just, if you just love those who love you, Jesus is saying you're not obeying the commands I'm giving you right here. He's saying don't stop loving that person because they have harmed you. They have hurt your feelings. They have angered you or frustrated you. He's saying love your now, look how he illustrates it in verses 35 and 36. But instead, 
love your enemies and do good and lend without expecting anything in return. And your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High because He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Go ahead. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. Okay. The foundation of enemy love is right there. Because Because He, God your Father, is kind to the ingrate, to the evil. What the heck does that mean? It means this. It was true right then, 2,000 years ago. Jesus is speaking it. It's true today. There are billions of people walking around. And they're breathing air. And they're kissing their children goodnight. That means their kids are still there and haven't been run over by car the previous day. They're eating food. And they are living life as if God doesn't exist. Every one of those things is a gift of God's patience. They don't realize that if they got what they deserve immediately right now, they would never kiss their children again. They would be dead. You and I would be dead. And we would be awaiting eternal damnation. This is what Jesus means. He's kind. Those who don't say, thank you that I'm breathing and eating and I have a wife that loves me. He says they're evil. His patience. Remember how Paul says, God's kindness here and patience, while you're still breathing, you have a chance to hear the gospel, is in order to lead you to repentance. That patience will run out. But his point is this. God has a type of love. In kindness towards sinners. It's not just feeding them food. It's bringing the message of Jesus Christ to them and saying, flee from the wrath to come. He's offering Himself to be enjoyed forever. Sinlessly and undeservedly, and in absolute grace and mercy. So Jesus' argument is to us sinners, especially and particularly to us sinners who have been saved by this Jesus, go on and show the truth that the Most High is your Father. Act like Him. You can trust Him. He's kind towards sinners. Love your enemies. That's His argument. Finally, I want to go back to one 
of these commands I skipped over. In verse 28, what does love your enemies include? This. Pray for those who abuse you. Praying for your enemy is one of the deepest forms of love. Because this doesn't mean pretend prayer. Okay, thank you for the food. Amen. Praying for your enemy means that you have to really want their good. Just think about it. We could feed our enemies sandwiches. We can give them drinks of water. We could say the nice word and bring ourselves to do this and that and on and on and do all of that without deep down genuinely wanting things to go well for them in the end. But when you leave your enemy and you're off in the woods or your living room or your car at the beach alone with the presence of God and you're praying for that enemy. Jesus doesn't mean an imprecatory prayer here. He means for their good. You're praying, God, would you save them? Would you cause your light to so shine on him or her, that they would embrace Christ and be forgiven of that sin against me and all sins forever? Or if it is a believer, God, would you open their eyes? If I'm seeing the situation correctly, would you open their eyes to see their sin? So to tell them, ask for forgiveness again and reconciliation would, would happen and it will go well with them. This is what Jesus did on the cross. Father, forgive them. They, they don't really understand what's happening. Forgive them. This is the way that the first martyr in church history prayed while his head was being caved in with rocks. Quote, Stephen, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. That is the way sinners pray when they're in touch with how much they've been forgiven. Jesus in this text this morning, is calling us to act and to do good things, helpful things, practical things for our enemies. But He is also calling us to something deeper. To actually come to the place where we want and desire their eternal best expressed through our alone times with God in prayer.
when your enemy is nowhere around. God, I really want this person to be with me in heaven forever. Where on God's earth does that power to love like that come from? This is why, this is why in one sense it's so easy. It's, it's hard in another and time consuming, but it's in another sense so easy to be an expository preacher. I don't have to make up an answer. It's in Jesus' sermon. Let me show you first. As we saw last week, verses 22 to 23, here's the power for this to happen to any degree in any of our lives. Blessed are you. That means how fortunate, Christian, you are. Get this. When people hate you. Get the connection. Love your enemies. Okay. Do good to those who hate you. How, how? Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and they revile you and they spurn your name at your reputation as evil on account of me, Jesus, the Son of Man. And watch, here it is. Rejoice. Even when that is happening, rejoice in that day and leap for joy. Where's the power? To do that. The next line. Because your reward is great in heaven. The promises of God purchased by Jesus Christ for your eternity is the carrot before you. And the power to live these commands in this life. He, first, he says, you can even rejoice while being beaten. And we see this with the apostles in the Acts, right? They rejoice that they counted them, they were counted worthy to be flogged and beaten because of the name of Jesus. Where'd that power come from? Their hope laid up in heaven. They, they, their eyes were opened to reality and to the truth. And their heart was anchored in those promises of the future. Which means this. That the command to love our enemies is not separated from the command to find your heart's satisfaction in the gospel. In the person of Jesus. In all that God has promised to be for you forever. Now, he's already said that in the beginning part of the sermon. Now, one more. Look at verse 35. He repeats that. We're at, see, here's the question again. Where is the power to come from from such sin 
laden people like me. And constantly I know what it is to have anger and revenge. Feelings come up. Where's the power to look Jesus in the face in my prayers and then go out and act that way? Verse 35. But love your enemies and do good and lend. Expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great. He doesn't tell us that in order to ignore it. He tells us that in order to be empowered to obey. The command to love your enemies is a command. At the same time, to find your hope in God through Jesus Christ daily. Not in the way people treat you. That's the power source. And that's our hope. To love our enemies. Loving your enemies. Got to get this now. Just two more lines. Loving your enemies does not earn the reward of heaven. The free gift of the reward of heaven is the power to love our enemies. Let's pray. Lord, uh, continue, I beg for all of us to use this remaining time as we sing to be pricked to be changed to be moved to be empowered by your presence in us through the Holy Spirit to find repentance to see that particular person whom you've put on our minds to go and do good to pray for. Lord, use us more and more in our daily lives in such a way that people will see our good deeds and ask us, tell me about this Christ that can produce such. Do this to the glory of His holy grace. Amen.